Good afternoon and welcome to the Walter and Betsy Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute, and we are pleased to welcome everyone today for a discussion of a major new book on China by former Hudson Institute senior fellow Chris Ford, China Looks at the West, Identity, Global Ambitions, and the Future of Sino-American Relations. This book is a must-read. Uh, it's, it's really an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary uh, series of observations on how China understands the West, and it really is must-reading on the uh, eve of uh, the summit between uh, Xi Jinping and President Obama here in Washington later this month, which is occurring, as we all know, against the a backdrop of massive economic turmoil in China, unprecedented cyber attacks from China on U.S. government databases, massive reform of the People's Liberation Army, and reports of significant, significant internal struggle within the Communist Party as well. So U.S.-China relations are very much towards the forefront of a very busy international policy agenda. We have an excellent panel for us this afternoon, and we will begin things today with remarks from Congressman Randy Forbes. Congressman Forbes is a longtime friend of Hudson Institute. He is, uh, represents the 4th District in Virginia in the House of Representatives. He's the founder and co-chair of the U.S. Congressional China Caucus. He is the chair of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Sea Power and Projection Forces. He is, an, he is a forceful and insightful voice on U.S.-China relations and on China's growing military prowess. And it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome him momentarily to give our keynote address. After his remarks, we're going to have a panel discussion moderated by Dr. Michael Pillsbury, who directs Hudson's Center for Chinese Strategy and the man who is himself the author of the best-selling book, The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. The discussion will begin with a few remarks from Chris about his book, and then we'll hear from our other distinguished panelists, uh, Elbridge Colby of the Center for New American Security and Miles Yu of the U.S. Naval Academy. Afterwards, copies of Chris Ford's new book will be available for purchase. Let me thank everyone for coming today, and let me ask everyone to extend a warm welcome to Congressman Randy Forbes. Well, thank you so much, and I, I'm going to be brief because I know you want to get to the main acts, and uh, I want to just say, first of all, how much I appreciate the work that the Hudson Institute does. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here uh, uh, today, and you've got a wonderful panel, great moderator, and uh, uh, Bridge Colby and uh, Mike Pillsbury both are uh, people that I go to all the time to get their opinion because I value it so much, and Chris, I just appreciate so much your service throughout the, the years and what you've done with this uh, this work. And I want to begin by saying this. If you think this is just about history uh, or past history, you are just incorrect. If you think this is just a work that is irrelevant for a big part of those individuals living in the United States because it is about a 12-hour time difference away from us, you're incorrect. Um, as we just heard mentioned, we are facing or on the eve 
of a major summit between two major powers in the world, and probably both leaders of those countries would love to be somewhere else uh, other than their countries because of all of the things that are going on at that time. It behooves us to just make sure, though, that we have the factual basis for which we can use to make good decisions. And I want to just give you an overlay of why I think this book is is so important. Uh, years ago, I remember going to China. I led a Codell with then uh, Congressman Ike Skelton. Many of you know Ike became the chairman of the Armed Services Committee. Ike was a dear friend of mine when he was a Democrat. Uh, he was a Democrat. When he was, they were in, in uh, majorities, he would lead the Codells. When the Republicans were in majority, I would lead the Codells uh, because we had that kind of a relationship. And oftentimes we'd get in briefings, and Ike would say, when it comes to China, there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. And he'd sit back and say, I'm going to let Randy ask all the questions. And uh, I remember as we came back from one of the Codells, um, we looked and we said, uh, I, I told him when we got on the plane, I said, they're going to build aircraft carriers, you know. And I said, I can tell by the way they're uh, bringing all their stuff together, the kind of metal they're creating and those kind of things. We came back and we talked to the Pentagon. The Pentagon basically said, oh, no, 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 they're not going not gonna to do that. And they even gave us a white paper to prove it. Uh, and, of course, uh, later uh, we got some satellite imagery that suggested they might be wrong. And, and, and the part of that, though, Ike and I decided to do, we, we really scoured committee meetings and subcommittee meetings on what we knew about China. And we found we didn't know very much about China. They knew so much more about us. And so we decided to create the China Caucus, not because we were going to be pro-China or against China, but because we wanted to be a clearinghouse of ideas. And we hoped that what we could do is either by inspiration or perhaps by jealousy or whatever else we could do, we could create a debate that would go on in Congress. And I still remember uh, the day that we had the kickoff for the um, uh, caucus. We had a large number of members, more than most caucus, probably had 20-some members in there. But what really astonished me was the number of television cameras, I think there were about 15 or 16, from China that were in there filming what we were saying. And uh, literally it was interesting because we were supposed to do it at 2 o'clock and they called votes about three minutes to two. And so we were going down the hallway, and all the cameras were following us because they thought we were just leaving, you know, at that time. But, but here's what, what got me. It, it got me then, and it got me on every single hearing we have. There are cameras in there filming the words that I'm saying, the words that other policymakers are saying. And they're taking them back somewhere for people in China to at least bring those words into the decision-making process. I rec recognize those of you who've traveled to China. Every single time we have a series of meetings there, and they're back-to-back -back meetings. This is what happens in every single one. You know the format, how you normally have it, two big chairs at the front, everybody all around. <laughs> you have a meeting for 50 minutes. Normally the Chinese leadership talks, and then they give us 10 minutes to have questions or, or respond. It's almost like clockwork. But, but here's the, the key thing. In each situation, by the time we get to the next meeting, they have assimilated everything we said. They have somehow uh, transported it to the next speaker, and they have carefully scripted what that next speaker is going to say. So he's incorporating what we said with the message that they want to have delivered. Here's the last part of that. We know today that many countries, and China is one of them, spend a lot of money and a lot of energy taking their decisions but then repackaging those decisions 
to words that they want the world to hear. And the reason this book is so important and today is so important is Chris has done really a phenomenally complex and yet phenomenally simple thing. What he's done in this book is to simply raise the question, does it not make sense for us if we want to make good policies that we wouldn't just listen to the verbiage that's been scripted, but maybe we would go back and read what people are actually talking about in China, that we would read their own words, the unscripted words, so that perhaps through that we can get some idea of what they are really thinking, not just about China, but about the United States and about the rest of the world. And I would suggest that on the eve of this summit, on the eve of all the decisions we have to look at with this very complex bilateral relationship that we have with China, it is imperative that we begin to say, what are they actually saying about themselves? What are the facts we need to bring in to this whole calculus as we develop strategies to deal with a very complex world and a very complex situation down the road? That's what Chris has done in this book. That's the discussion you're going to hear with these panelists today. That's what Mike is going to help walk you through with his uh, ability to moderate this um, panel. And then the closing thing I would share with you is this, which... Uh, Chris, I think was one of the findings that you have, that very much a thread running through all of their thoughts, all their discussions, is the prominence that they view China to be in at some particular point in time, whatever that particular point of time might be. It is important for us in this country to recognize at least that viewpoint because it may very well give us some clarity as to what their ultimate goals might be, their ultimate decisions, so that we can create uh, strategies that help us uh, make sure that we are navigating through some very, very challenging waters in the years ahead. And the last thing I, I, I want to leave with you is this. I see so many people who don't understand the importance of understanding this region. The importance is, as many of you know, that today our friends in New York, as they're sitting um, up there making financial decisions, about 97% of those financial decisions are going to be by underwater cable, uh, underwater cable that um, is going to be protected by the United States Navy in that particular situation. We know that about 85% of our 85% of our goods are going to be traveling on sea lanes as we move through trade. But the other thing that we know is that in the Asia-Pacific area, about two-thirds of the world's trade over the next 10 years is going to go through that area. It's going to be incredibly important to this country that we have the right strategies uh, as we move into the next um, several years. So, Chris, thank you so much for this great work. And to all the panelists, thank you for your work on this area. We look forward to your comments. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you. In a court of law, they would, we would say, all rise, and everybody would stand up. I think a subcommittee chairman for sea power is pretty important, but you didn't stand up. So we may have, we may have offended a very powerful congressman. 
My only role today is to call on people to speak and, and see who wants to ask questions from the audience. I think Chris Ford uh, is being celebrated today for a really magnificent book. Uh, there are two points about launching a book. One is for the author and the commentators to give reasons to buy the book. The second is not to go too far, not to tell everything in the book so that nobody buys it. And thinks I, I they think have we're a, safe. It's, uh, <laughs> I think they have a full picture. There's a Chinese proverb for this. Yu Mao Chun, I know you know this. Don't, don't raise the whole platter. This is a rough translation. Uh, I myself only want to point out one reason to buy the book, and that is the summit with President Xi and President Obama is only two weeks away. And on the last two pages of Chris Ford's book, pages 499 and 500, he gives a cautionary note about how not to conduct the summit in two weeks. He talks about congeniality, and in a way that we've already seen this begin in the last couple of weeks, comments out of the White House and from the Chinese ambassador here and from Beijing, that this is going to be a delightful surprise, a very warm summit, the essence of the kind of congeniality you talk about on the last two pages. But Chris Ford also warns against that. He says, congeniality is not a bad thing, but it needs to be coupled with toughness and firmness. And he explains that many people still think, I'm afraid you mean powerful people in our government, still think toughness and firmness will only upset the Chinese and turn them in an anti-American direction. So he, on the last page of his book, he gives the reason why that is not the case, that China already thinks that way, so that there's nothing, I'm not quite nothing, but little we could do in terms of being tough and firm that would turn, that would change their way of, to use the book's title, the way China looks at the West. So with that opening comment, I call upon Chris Ford not to hapan tochu, <laughs> but to give us reasons to buy this book, which I personally think is just magnificent. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, there are a lot of thanks uh, that are in order. Uh, to Hudson, of course, for, for graciously hosting this institute. Thank you very much, Ken. Um, to Mike for moderating. Uh, to Congressman Forbes, of course, uh, for offering us his wisdom to this. For my fellow participants uh, up here for offering us their wisdom and being gracious enough to come and to plow through uh, a very painfully long book, I'm sure, uh, in preparation for this. Uh, and also, I should add, uh, thanks uh, are, are due to uh, Mr. Andrew Marshall, um, lately of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment, uh, for his support and encouragement uh, uh, over the years and for his willingness, the willingness of his office to fund the, the research that uh, ultimately resulted in the book that you guys either have in front of you or hopefully will soon have uh, in front of you. So thanks to all of them. And of course, the usual caveat, since I am a congressional staffer, uh, nothing I say here will be anything other than my own views uh, and will, you know, any... Any resemblance between my views and those of anybody else in the U.S. government is a coincidence. Um, <laughs> hopefully a felicitous coincidence, but a coincidence nonetheless. So uh, please remember the caveat. This is just me talking. Do not impute it to anyone else, or I will be in serious trouble. <laughs> there are a lot of issues that I thought about choosing to talk about uh, here today um, to draw out from this very long book. But 
I think for purposes of, especially in light of what Mike has said of the upcoming summit, uh, one of the, the things, what I would like to focus on here today to get the discussion started is to try to draw out some of the, uh, the policy implications of the extended analysis of uh, Chinese understandings of the United States, of the West, and through those prisms of China uh, itself. And so I, really what I'm focusing here is on some of the elements in the final chapter, which I'd like to draw out for you. And I think my fellow panelists will also uh, uh, probably have some reactions to, uh, to those ideas. I would offer, I think, four or five key lessons. The first one is, uh, stems from the degree to which I would argue, and do argue at some length, that Chinese narratives of and approaches to the United States seem to have developed and to be driven by Chinese internal dynamics to a very great degree. Uh, Chinese thinkers for more than a century, uh, as I recount, have expressed and struggled over their hopes and fears for China uh, in significant part through their interpretations of the non-Chinese world, and especially the United States, um, with Chinese political dynamics manifesting themselves on the terrain of, and, and through contestation for control over, if you will, the Chinese narrative of America. Um, the Chinese Communist Party, CCP regime, has itself always devoted great attention and energy to controlling and shaping this narrative. And how the United States is interpreted to Chinese has varied according to the tactical needs of the party's legitimacy <coughs> strategy at any particular time. Now, I think US policymakers need to remember this. Um, because it suggests that Beijing's approaches to Sino-American relations are only partly influenced or even capable of being influenced by what the United States actually does. It is still something of a mantra in some parts of the China policy community in this country, as I think Mike was alluding to, that uh, we must not think that or act as if China is a competitor or any kind of an adversary, because this will simply confirm the uh, sort of worst suspicions of hardliners in the Chinese regime and thus become a self prophecy. Um, and again, as, uh, as Mike has uh, sort of uh, previewed for you, I think that's an analytical mistake. The PRC has taken very different approaches over the years for tactical reasons based upon its assessments of various factors, not least what it stood to gain from smooth Sino-American relations in support of its dream of national return, uh, what the trends of comprehensive national power, CNP, a subject on which uh, Dr. Pillsbury has written extensively, uh, what the needs of C the trends of CNP were felt to be and what the domestic legitimacy discourse of the party state was felt to require. Um, Beijing, however, has perceived the United States as an adversary and a competitor all along through this process. And the darkness and confrontationalism that is inherent in these narratives, I think, is of a sort that cannot simply be dispelled or Chinese strategic approaches redirected simply by, as Mike indicated, US congeniality. So that's the first lesson. So that second, the second lesson has to do with, well, of course, then what can we do to influence Chinese behavior, especially when it seems to be turning to, toward the worse in recent years? And I would argue that a second important lesson inherent in the analysis that I offer in the book is that US policymakers retain at least one type of tool, a set of tools, if you will, that may still be able to influence um, how it is that Chinese leaders make choices uh, about and act on the basis of whatever grim and adversarial images they may still cherish nonetheless, and which they have been cultivating in their own uh, political system with some assiduousness for quite a few years. Chinese perceptions of US economic decline and political paralysis may have reduced or removed the positive aspects of what I call emulative aspiration uh, as an ingredient of Chinese foreign policy making. But while this has left Beijing's America policy, I, I think, less constrained by tactical caution than it used to be, um, it's also, if anything, heightened the importance, relative importance, of risk manipulation uh, and cost imposition. And those things, we still have some ability to do. 
to the extent that debates do continue, and I think that they do, continue within China's political elite over what degree and to what extent and for how long to abandon Deng Xiaoping's famous cautious time-biding um, policy of non-provocative strategic caution in favor of much more self-assertion against the United States and other countries, I think to the extent that, that that debate still goes on, it remains within our power to affect how costly it is that Chinese leaders are likely to perceive such self-assertiveness to be. My book's analysis suggests that perceptions of potential political, military, and economic cost are perhaps the most important single factor that still constrains Sinocentric provocations in East Asia, as well as more broadly on the global stage. In this respect, from a sort of policy recommendation perspective, I would urge that American competitive strategists consider how to make, in various ways, make Chinese adversarial behavior much more painful, not least by increasing our ability to impose costs on them in ways that the, the regime in Beijing seems most to fear. This, for example, might suggest a greater role for such things as more robust efforts to undermine the party state's information controls at home, efforts to skew its efforts, <laughs> sorry, and to undermine its efforts to skew the rest of the world's narratives about China uh, in ways favorable to the party state. Uh, it might involve more resolute promotion of civil rights, human rights, religious liberty, and democratic political values in China economic or resource access pressures, especially in times of, uh, of concern on that very front at home in, in China. Uh, perhaps cultivation of institutions by and among <coughs> and for countries, uh, states that are faithful to democratic values as such, especially those in East Asia. Uh, I wrote an article on uh, uh, concert of democracies thinking, uh, and one, one should perhaps re-explore these kinds of things because it's precisely that kind of thing that the regime in Beijing seems very much to be afraid of. Certainly the propaganda narrative talks about it as a deep, dark threat that we are actually engaged in already, and to the extent that we are being <coughs> discredited for doing these things to start with and yet aren't doing them, we might as well get some of the advantage of having done so. Um, and of course, better resourced um, Defense Department policies and postures vis-a-vis -vis China's emerging military capabilities. Finally, I would also suggest that this kind of competitive strategy approach would suggest a much more prominent role for political military diplomacy uh, in the creation and maintenance of, of stronger cooperative and security relationships. Uh, with countries both around China's periphery and farther afield, whose policies jointly or severally can raise the perceived costs and risks of assertiveness in Beijing. So, next issue. Um, and this is one on which uh, some of my panelists may have particular disagreements. We'll have to see. Uh, I think uh, there's an important question as to the degree to which Chinese perceptions of, well, the impact <coughs> of Chinese perceptions of American policy towards China and to what extent it is driven by what international relations scholars might call realist motives or idealist motives. Um, and I think depending upon how analysts in Beijing assess this question, it can have very, very important implications for the future of the relationship. Um, if American foreign policy, for example, in, with respect to China, were felt to be fundamentally realist in its orientation, then I would imagine that Chinese leaders can be expected to conclude uh, that Washington is irrevocably hostile to China's rise and that it will be committed to precluding China's return, as it's called, no matter what. Um, this conclusion would, would fit very well with, with the current threat narratives being put out by the propaganda offices in Beijing. Um, but, on the other hand, if the United States were perceived to be driven to a significant degree by <laughs> idealist motives, the situation might be rather different. If we, for example, were perceived to, well, if it were perceived that America's opposition to China's rise or return is not intrinsic or structural, but instead stems largely from Washington's principled opposition to the Chinese political system, this might have very significant implications. It would imply 
that the United States might be willing to, at least some degree, to accept a risen China if that China were a democracy faithful to the basic human values that modern liberal democracies prize. Now, if you frame it this way, democratic change at home would then become in the strategic interest of China itself. If China's regime type is the final obstacle to national rejuvenation, as conceived in Beijing, and return to international status and respect, all patriotic Chinese eager to vindicate the Chinese dream of return would perhaps instantly acquire a powerful stake in sending their party leaders packing. Especially because I suspect, and, and we may have some disagreements over this, many Americans in fact are idealist in just that way. Um, this perhaps could open up some very interesting public diplomacy and perception management opportunities. Okay, very quickly now, the final couple points. Um, competitive strategy against a, what I call a virtuocracy. I spend a lot of time talking about virtuocracy and the uh, idiosyncrasies of that kind of a, an approach to, to power in the book. And I think if U.S. policymakers were to understand that they are dealing with a Chinese government that does have pr pr profound virtuocratic pretensions, and that is one which grounds it, much of its asserted legitimacy on claims to, to sort of meritocratic benevolence and political moral righteousness, however implausible that may seem, um, this very fact alone might open up certain policy alternatives that we have not been very keen or able or willing thus far to, to turn to. I think it's a characteristic weakness of an ostensibly virtuocratic autocracy that it has difficulty shrugging off what in other systems might be handled merely as uh, regrettable errors or things that in a democracy, for example, could be corrected at the ballot box. Um, in our system, if things are being run abysmally badly, the easy answer is, well, obviously we elected someone who doesn't have the right recipe, and we should turn them out and replace them with someone who has the correct recipe. In a system which justifies its hold, in, a, in which the elite justifies its hold on power upon the idea that only they are sufficiently benevolent, disinterested, um, omnicompetent, omniscient, and wise and wonderful to be, to be you know, able to monopolize power without check or accountability forever, um, if your only claim to power is the kind of performance metric that you can do everything so darn well that you deserve to be running things in that fashion, this is a system that does not shrug off problems very well. You can't admit that anything was your fault. You can't admit that you screwed up. You can't admit that you made bad choices or perhaps were a corrupt, uh, you know, nasty thug. Um, and those things are not answerable by a change of personnel because it indicts the very nature of the political system from top to bottom. Um, and I think that kind of a virtuocracy is uniquely vulnerable to certain types of pressures, which we have been very reticent about. But uh, we might do, for example, worse in competing against such a system to obtain and publicize information about the corruption, abuses of power, errors, or other meretricious personal or professional behavior of the ruling elite there. Um, one might uh, set about in various ways, that and others, to systematically poke holes in the Communist Party's legitimacy narrative. Um, by making people more aware of the myriad ways in which the regime's practice betrays its pretensions to omnicompetent benevolence and uh, disinterested meritocracy. Uh, just a thought. Um, and I think generally, as a, as a way to look at how we might form a competitive strategy, I would suggest that it might be valuable to use the Communist Party's dark and semi-imaginary threat narratives of American-led subversion and global anti-China bias as something of a Rorschach test. They are themselves, in some respect, telling us what they most fear. Um, and to the extent that that's the case, that may provide us a way to help identify points of pressure and leverage um, that we haven't hitherto used. I would argue that in this respect that we need not, we need to avoid falling into the trap of mirror imaging. Uh, it is not, uh, you know, we, we, 
need to be more sinologically informed as we, in, as we build our strategy and not fall into the trap of tailing, tailoring our approaches to what would influence us in the desired ways were we in their shoes because, of course, we are not in their shoes. They are. And we need to understand that they in ways better than I think we do right now if we are to have an effective competitive strategy. We need more strategic sinology. And finally, last very quick point, as I suggested earlier, uh, well, we need to do more to plan our approaches with an eye to how our strategies would work or might work or should work against a landscape of possible alternative Chinas. Uh, the, the scholarly community that observes China is very much divided over the future of what's going on there, what to make of current economic problems, what to make of internal leadership squabbles, how successful will reform efforts in the People's Liberation Army be. There are myriad questions on which there is no known answer, um, probably in China too, let alone uh, over here when we're trying to observe somewhat opaque systems from the outside. We don't know exactly what will happen, and we need to be building our strategies not just against what we think will work very well against a most likely center of gravity probability outcome of what will happen in China, but against a range of things that might happen. Um, and I would suggest that uh, even a strategy that doesn't work absolutely, this is a very Herman Kahn kind of uh, uh, observation. I say this with great pride, mm -hmm. having been at Hudson Institute for several years. Um, you know, a very Herman Kahn kind of insight that you need to build a good, a good plan is one that doesn't just, doesn't just, well, you shouldn't build it to perform optimally against the most likely outcome if by doing it that way you ensure that it will perform appallingly against alternative possible outcomes which are not foreclosable. Um, we need to build strategies with an eye to how they perform against a landscape of alternatives and I see very little of that kind of a thinking uh, in US-China strategy today and I would urge that much more be done about it. That is way too much verbiage to start off with but I'm delighted for the no, chance no. to talk and be here and I'm looking forward to hearing both from my fellow participants and from all of you here present. Thank you once again for having me. Wow. And you're willing to stay until 2 o'clock to answer questions <laughs> and to hear what you think might be criticism from your fellow panelists. Don't, don't tell the Senate Banking Committee, but I'm willing to stay the rest of the afternoon. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you all are not. I understand that, too. So. Uh, our next, our first commentator uh, is the author of two classic books himself, published by Yale University Press. He has tenure in the Department of History at Annapolis, teaching the next generation of midshipmen about U.S.-China relations. I've read the two books, and today is the Chris Ford Day. We're here to celebrate and launch and promote Chris Ford's book. But perhaps, Chris, I could be forgiven by mentioning Yu Mao Chun's two books in some ways support your argument. He, he pretends to only be looking at the period from 1942 to 1947 in these two books, but he shows the vicious policy debates that go on inside the American government, especially inside the intelligence community at the time, over the nature of China, what the narrative that's being fed to the Americans is. So in a way, I'm hoping his comments will somehow reference his two classic books. But <coughs> Professor Yu has been criticized in our field for many years as being too shy, too soft-spoken, <laughs> and will not necessarily tell us what he really thinks today. <laughs> the insiders are chuckling right now, actually. So. <laughs> Professor, Professor Yu, do you want to be the first commentator? Sure, sure. Uh, <clears throat> uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, <clears throat> You know, there's also a Chinese uh, proverb says, "Chang da chu The first bird that sticks it out gets shot first. So, um, 
Well, before I came here, you know, uh, uh, Annapolis is a very uh, peculiar place because uh, they care a lot about popular image. So before I came here, a public affairs officer who's a commander in the Navy is very worried about what I'm going to say. So I told him the first thing I'm going to do is to make a, a disclosure. Uh, everything I said is just my view. Does not necessarily represent the U.S. Navy or any defense strategy or any defense planning or plot against China. Um, <laughs> so um, we invited you to give the U.S. Navy's point of view today. Well, you all failed that because I have to care about my skin clearance stuff. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, uh, I, well, I thought about another uh, anecdote. Um, we uh, I've been there for 21 years, a very long time. Uh, I remember about 10 years ago, there was a Marine Colonel who taught in my department. And he has, uh, he had a very uh, interesting way of judging the value of the book is by height and thickness. <laughs> uh, he had two shelves uh, in his office. Uh, one is for teaching core courses, you know, standard course everybody has to take. Another one is called re his research uh, uh, interest. So on, a, on the core course, he arranged books uh, by height. In other words, the highest book. Uh, a tallest book and, then, and, and the left, and then will be the most valuable. And it looks very much like a marine-like, you know, attentive stuff. <laughs> Another bookshelf is a uh, bookshelf is books of his research interest, which is about World War II. So he arranged uh, the uh, the book according to thickness. Uh, the thickest book is the best. Uh, so Chris Ford's book has both. It's pretty tall and pretty thick. Okay, so so this is uh, a uh, it's a very good standard. Uh, I would also say that uh, this book, actually, I, uh, I wrote, if you have the book in front of you, in the back, I actually have this uh, blurb over there. I called it a landmark study. Um, and it's not because uh, uh, just uh, its height and its thickness. It's uh, really uh, break, some break some ground. Um, I can think of several things. Um, you know, uh, first thing I want to mention is uh, um, in the uh, China field, um, particularly regard with regard to the nature of uh, what China is, uh, and uh, my uh, reference to my uh, former books. Um, and I think we have normally a binary image of China. One is uh, uh, the image of China with great history and great uh, cultural richness, and land of panda and great war. Um, and that cultural aspect of that and the historical continuity part of that is particularly attractive. Uh, so on the other hand, there's also another side of the image that is China is a communist country. It's a country ruled by a, a, by a uh, Leninistic party with uh, uh, demand for unanimity of opinions and uh, monopoly of power. So for most Americans, and particularly in the China field, these two images never quite sort of uh, uh, get reconciled. So what you end up having is uh, a, a very skewed uh, view of China because it's kind of ambiguity of these two binary sides of, of China. Uh, the most notorious example was the CBS uh, famous landmark uh, documentary called Misunderstanding China, which was broadcast, which was prepared for many years. But it was broadcast uh, just uh, days before Richard Nixon went to China in 1972. It was a phenomenally uh, a sophisticated piece of uh, a documentary. Uh, it talks about, it's about uh, uh, 50, 60 minutes long, but it's talked about uh, the first part of the, how we misunderstood China because talk about Hollywood's racist ideas, Charlie Chan's Fu Manchu's, uh, 
supervillain, super uh, hero, and uh, uh, the wise Chinese man always speak in fortune cookie English. Uh, so those, those sort of things, and it, it was struck core to Americans in the 1970s. Even today, you look at this, uh, you should be ashamed of being part of the American sort of a, a culture because we treat the Chinese um, uh, in such a way, in public, uh, at least in entertainment, that sort of things. Uh, and then, the whole point of this uh, CBS documentary was to point out that it's time for us to change that. See, President Nixon went to China. This is a good opportunity. Uh, so China, Chinese, just become just that, the Chinese. There's no distinction of good Chinese, bad Chinese, communist Chinese, nationalist Chinese, or people who are in the middle. Doesn't matter, just the Chinese. Uh, it makes a very particular point of why they, we have treated China so badly. Uh, for example, we misunderstood China in, in World War II. We thought the Chinese were, were good guys, allies, fighting against common enemy Japan. And then several years later, uh, in the Korean War, the Chinese fought us. So we're betrayed. We, it's all because we misunderstood Chinese. So this is basically the, the, the mentality that blurred the line of traditional China and contemporary China. The binary images were blurred <laughs> deliberately to create a political environment and the public opinion, climate of opinion, for Chinese to go to China. That has not changed. You look at the, the most prominent example of Henry Kissinger's book on China. It's the same thing. The, most, the two most phrases used by Henry Kissinger, I actually read the book carefully, calculated, are the Chinese and the interlocutor. He likes to use that word a lot. Uh, it's because in the mind of Henry Kissinger, it's still 1972. He was the major architect of that political uh, uh, diploma, diplomatic uh, uh, stroke. So, so this is basically one. Now Chris's book, break that tradition. <laughs> Make that line very clear. He talks about traditional China. He talks about the land of the pandas. He talks about the land of the Great Wall. He also talks about contemporary China, communist China. And how this continuity and changes occur in front of our eyes. And how the Chinese use history, contemporary China, to manipulate the image of the United States. And that's really, really significant. So intellectually, and it's subterranean, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's very subversive. In, in that way. Uh, so I, I really recommend that book. Second point I want to make is, uh, you know, uh, American intellectual uh, environment is, is pretty poisoned since 1950. Who lost China? Uh, and were they communists in the government of the United States uh, under FDR and Truman? So, so ever since that, that time, American, China field is, is basically divided into two, two kinds, left-winger and right-winger, right? Uh, uh, Panda, Huggers and uh, dragon slayers. <laughs> so you have that kind of very poisoned uh, environment. When you criticize China, you're automatically classified as a dragon slayer. When you are into panda, you know, well, all the other, uh, you know, the Great Wall of China, and then you're automatically a, a panda hugger. So it's very hard to argue, have an impassioned argument about what reality of China really is. Uh, and I think if you read the book, you'll find out uh, Chris's book is one of the very rare books 
that really looks like China as it is. Uh, and it didn't really go through that left wing, right wing. Uh, even on China image per se, I mean, it's, it's a, the, the first uh, significant book about China uh, in American public uh, awareness is by um, the uh, anarchist, American anarchist, uh, um, Harold Isaacs. He talked about you know, images of Asia and he talked about China a lot. In, it was 1920s, 1930s. And then the most, sec uh, second most important book that shaped Americans' intellectual understanding of China was by John King Fairbank. John King Fairbank wrote a book called The China Perceived. And in that book, he basically said, well, there's a progressive China, which is represented by the communist, and there's reactionary China, which is represented by the nationalist. So the communist is the one because uh, it's progressiveness, right? And I check on Fairbank. Fairbank, is from, Fairbank basically received his education somewhere in Wisconsin and a very, very progressive. It's a part of American progressive movement, if you, if you understand, early uh, part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Um, and then, of course, Steve Mosier wrote in the second most important book, Rebuttal. Uh, uh, it's a rebuttal against Fairbank. He called it simply, Fairbank's book is called China Perceived. He wrote a book basically called China Misperceived. Uh, and to talk about why uh, communist China is not what Fairbank said about it. It's only influential in some very important uh, circle in the United States. One of the most important person who was influenced by that was Andy Marshall. Um, and uh, uh, you don't hear many people talk about that because it's written by a reactionary. Uh, so the China field is very poisoned uh, intellectually. Chris book transcended that. And uh, he didn't get into this left wing, right wing, and he talked about China as is. Um, and I think, you know, really, really, I highly recommend that. The, uh, the, uh, the last part, uh, uh, the second part is, uh, um, uh, the third part I would, a uh, third point I would make about this book is, um, this book actually also, uh, addresses a important inadequacy in the China field. That's because most China scholars, they really know a lot about China. But very rarely do they quite understand America. They, very much like George Cannon. George Cannon understands the Soviet Union very well. But he really couldn't, couldn't quite understand the American democracy. That's why all his life he's a miserable person. Um, uh, uh, he's basically overcome by jealousy, by uh, disenchantment, and yet his analysis of the Soviet Union in the 1940s uh, was very brilliant. But the sad thing is, his correct views of the Soviet Union and the communist system in the 1940s was sort of influenced by his disenchantment with America later on in his life. So he was basically changing his views left and right, and, and so that's, that's an American tragedy. Uh, that's because people devoted their life to look at America. So whenever you, you mentioned about uh, 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 Chinese uh, sort of a loud mouth, this is extreme right winds of the hawks, and then they will normally think about, you know, hey, look at you know, Fox News and, and uh, Donald Trump. We have the same people. So it's not the same. The city of Beijing is not run the same way as the city of Los Angeles is run. It's very different. Most China scholars fail to understand that distinction. And it's a very, very important. Jim Lilly, uh, the uh, former ambassador to China, the career CIA guy on China and Northeast Asia politics, intelligence, uh, in his memoir, China Hands, had a very telling episode in which he said, you know what, because he was the first intelligence officer um, to China after Nixon to China, went to China. And uh, he said, the most frustrating aspect of my job 
about collecting information intelligence on China for the U.S. government is that when I prepare reports for months on, on a very important subject, somebody from Washington, D.C., very important person, senator, vice president, or even president, will come to, the, to China, spend three days, and then instantly that three days will turn this important politician into a China expert. Whatever you say, whatever your intelligence report to him, doesn't matter because he had already formulated his view on China based on his three days of experience in China. That is very important. The reason why that is the case is because most American policymakers do not really place China at top of the priority. Okay. You look at the American Secretary of State in the last 150 years or 200 years, how many of them could claim Asia experts? President Obama keeps saying, we're the Pacific nation. How many Secretary of State were actually China experts? The last one I checked was John Fox, right? Uh, Fox was uh, the secretary of uh, William uh, uh, Benjamin Harrison, 1890s. He resigned in protest because the U.S. government didn't pay much into Asia. He resigned and went on to serve uh, Li Hongzhang as his advisor in the 1890s. Ever since then, you don't have anybody who, who actually uh, who, who specializes in China. Everybody is about Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and Europe. So uh, that is really important. This book is very important for one particular reason because Chris, I use this word in the best of all possible uh, uh, ways. Oh, oh dear. He's a quintessential <laughs> bureaucrat. He's a policy analyst. He understands America. You look at his book, he talks about the American political system. He talks about ideology. He looks at, at, at China as one of the many nations of the world uh, that fit into this sort of a, the, the, the universal system of politics, democracy, human rights, all other things, all together. Realism, and so that's very important. He speaks the language of Washington bureaucrats. He speaks the language of the American policy. You don't have that. You have a very rare case when you have policymakers who are also policy advisor who are also scholar, and we have these two prominent examples here, Mike and uh, Chris. So, and his book is not just about how China looks at the United States. It's also about policy recommendations for people who are dealing with China lately, who discovered China is far more than just Panda, Great Wall, or DF-21Ds. Um, so it's a much more profound intellectually, culturally, it's an environment. And, 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 and so that, that is basically you know, um, uh, the three points I'd like to, uh, to, uh, to mention in a very disorganized fashion. Um, um, I have uh, one full disclosure because I was one of the uh, I hope uh, um, one of several who recommend this book for publication. So the publisher, uh, I did have, you probably didn't I know didn't that. I didn't actually know that. Okay. They successfully uh, concealed it. Successfully. Um, I uh, wrote a, a very long review and uh, full of eloquence, and I don't have that right now because <laughs> it's not written. Uh, but uh, uh, the blurb is part of that, so please read it. You want to review it too, for you. I may have actually <laughs> no. stacked everything here. I'm, I'm actually not a China policy expert, unlike what this is. Well, uh, great. Well, I guess I'll, I'll dive in. Um, well, first of all, uh, uh, thank you, uh, Chris and Mike, for inviting me. And thanks to, to Ken. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. It's a, a wonderful cause for a, a good friend for whom I have tremendous admiration, both as a, as a human being and as an intellect uh, in Chris. So 
it's a, it's a delight to be here. A um, couple of thoughts just right off the bat. One is that um, I think you've pretty much blocked off the 1.4 billion person market maybe in the People's Republic. So we may actually all have to buy two books to compensate for the book sales. Um, but I, the, I know I'm not going again, <laughs> um, but it depends on what you say. Okay, yeah. That, yeah. And the, I think especially if we look at this in a sort of a Confucian or kind of Neo-Confucian or sort of Mandarin perspective, quintessential bureaucrat is actually uh, a great compliment. So uh, it's a testament to your, your, your skill and intellect. So but, thing, yeah. um, uh, all, all joking aside, this is, uh, as I think has already been amply said, but bears saying again, it's an excellent uh, uh, book, um, uh, comprehensive but, but lucid, uh, lyrical, um, uh, with Chris's typical elegance, but really um, uh, surveys this, this, this fascinating and, and, and really important subject about what China thinks, I think, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, but there's a tendency for us to think a lot about blue, but this is a real sense of, of thinking about, about the other side, thinking about China, but also thinking about it in a way, I think, Miles, you put it well, that, that is looking at it from a policy perspective. That is to say, not getting um, wholly, wholly uh, disconnected from, from what's of relevance uh, from a policy perspective here, but really trying to understand and understanding how China makes decisions, how it, how it perceives um, uh, what we do and how it sees its place in the world and so forth and so on. And I think how it, how it can be influenced. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from, from this book, from this project, is, um, is that China you know, can be influenced. It, it does respond to outside stimuli and outside, even outside perception, even sometimes things that aren't, aren't intended to be stimuli, but, but, but may be things that we do as a matter of course. And I think Congressman Forbes' uh, uh, anecdote was, was very much to that point that um, you know, what, what people say in the halls of Congress may be in front of uh, uh, an audience uh, far smaller than this one may, may have resonance uh, uh, in, in, in China. And I think that that's, that's an important thing for us, to, for us to bear in mind because I think it does relate to the um, part of the discussion, which, which sometimes you get, you know, we, we have to be careful about offending the Chinese. Another is, you know, it's hopeless. We can't, we can't really, you know, we may as well not, not even try. But this, I think Chris's, Chris's uh, a book, um, you know, among many other things, uh, kind of lays that to rest. Um, and I think, it, I think it does, you know, contribute to the uh, uh, very much the sort of policy perspective that uh, firmness, uh, an intelligent firmness, uh, a tailored firmness, a, a calculated firmness, uh, can have an effect on Chinese behavior and can have a, a quite positive effect on Chinese behavior from our, from our point of view, which I think is of particular relevance uh, uh, these days when we think about the South and East China Seas and China's broader international or portfolio. And also that a strategy um, uh, is, is, is useful. I mean, uh, Mike has written, obviously, very prominently on, on on his view of, of China's kind of long-term strategy. You know, my feeling is that, that it would be lovely for us to have a, a strategy worthy of an Andy Marshall, but, but maybe just having some strategy, strategy at all, just a kind of a strategic approach at all would be useful. And I think that that's, that's hard in our system. I think President Clinton is reported to have said that strategy is overrated and you can get by with ad hoc. And I've, I've heard people coming out of the government say, well, ad hocery is better because it's incremental and it's organic. Um, uh, but I think, you know, that, that if you take Mike's book and, and, and Chris's book as well, coming at it from a different angle and different style, um, that, that having a, a kind of a conception of where we want to take things, where we want to go, how we, um, how we use positive pressure and, and uh, or sort of pressure and firmness as well as positive inducements and incentives uh, is, is, is really valuable. Um, 
So, I mean, there's, a, there's an immense uh, number of things to talk about. And on, and on the whole, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm in pretty much in harmony, to use, if I can use that word, with, with the, the thrust of... harmonious podium. Yes, a harmonious podium. Uh, with, with, with Chris's book and, and perspective, analytical perspective, I think maybe it's of greatest interest if we kind of dive into some of the policy implications, and I'll take Chris's bait a little bit on the realism versus idealism um, uh, uh, spectrum. And as somebody who kind of, you know, certainly wouldn't affiliate with a lot of the academic realists, but from a kind of colloquial perspective, I, I, I think of myself as a realist. Um, and I think that this gets at one of the biggest long-term questions about, about China policy, which is how do we look at the competition with China? I think we're all agreed that there is a competition with China or that we should be participating in this competition a lot better. But what does it look like over the long term? And I think Chris's uh, uh, contention in the book, and it's shared by people like Aaron Friedberg, uh, with whom I was debating this point uh, recently, um, is that if you get uh, democratization over time, and particularly a kind of a liberal democratization, I think, although I'll return to that point in a second, um, that in a sense, uh, and I, you know, Chris can correct me, but that in a sense the fundamental problems or the fundamental tensions in the relations between the United States and China will essentially, essentially resolve themselves. And I think that there's you know, both a, a sort of a conception that, that that kind of a liberal democratization is not only plausible, but, but something that we could, that we could you know, from a Herman Kahn perspective, that we could reasonably bet on, um, but also that even if we got to that point, that if we got to that point of something like it, um, that we would, we, would pretty much, we would pretty much be, you know, like we treat Taiwan, I think, as it was an example, or maybe uh, Japan or something. Um, so, in a sense, are, are we in an enduring competition under almost, you know, kind of most plausible futures, or is that competition, to use Chris's term, essentially uh, uh, contingent? Um, my own view, uh, I think, is a bit different from Chris. I mean, I, I very much, you know, I think that if we had democratization, particularly a kind of a liberal democratization, uh, we would be likely to see a significant amelioration in tensions. Um, but I guess I'm enough of a, of a realist to think that a lot of, a lot of those tensions would, would still remain. I mean, I think a country can certainly be democratic. In fact, the transition period to such a democracy might be, in a sense, the most dangerous period as the academic literature and, I think, common sense and historical um, you know, reflections suggest that uh, uh, transitioning democracies like Imperial Germany or, or Imperial Japan are often the most uh, bellicose and the most uh, assertive um, for a variety of reasons we can get into. But I think even you know, a, a plausibly democratic China is still likely to have interest vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis our own that are, that are likely to, to put us in some degree of tension. I mean, one of the, um, you know, if, if we have problems with China now, I mean, one of the, thing, one of the, problem, one of the points that people, that people make these days is, is well, you know, do we really have tensions with China? You know, do we really have issues that we um, are, are, you know, are worthy of a serious competition? I think, you know, I think the answer is, is yes. You know, who, who will have kind of, who will set the rules of the road in Asia in terms of trade, in terms of access, uh, and so forth and so on? But if you, take a, if you take trade, for instance, a plausibly democratic China could also be one that could seek to set terms of trade that are unfavorable to the United States. I mean, you know, look at Japan. Obviously, things are changing now with TPP. Um, a lot of countries that are democratic uh, um, are, you know, not exactly in sync with us. Again, I think, those, I think those would be very likely to ameliorate, and the ways that you could work them out, there would be more mechanisms to, to, to adjudicate them, but I think the tensions would exist. I think nationalism um, and, uh, you know, every, every man's patriotism is another man's nationalism, but I think nationalism would still be a potent factor, and in fact, in some respects, there might be 
uh, and even more assertive nationalism, particularly if it were a multi-party system uh, involving a single party that might be particularly sort of the hawk party uh, in China. So we might see periods of rapprochement inter inter uh, interspersed with periods of, um, of, of, of tensions. Uh, again, in a situation that's likely to be considerably, that's likely to be better on the whole. Um, so, you know, even if we got there, I think there would still be problems. And I think uh, the other thing is that, that, that strikes me, and especially, you know, reading Chris's work, is, you know, how, how likely are we to get to um, a fully liberal democratic China in this sense? You know, in some sense, you could have a liberal democratic China um, that was not in tension with the United States. But in some sense, that's a little bit tautological, right? Um, but, I, you know, if I look at, I look, if I look at Chris's, Chris's work, I see a lot of the themes of the Middle Kingdom, of the great telos of return uh, to Chinese greatness. I see those as being, you know, the Chinese par Communist Party may be manipulating them and maybe exaggerating them, but they're very real in the Chinese historical tradition, and they're very deep wellsprings of, um, that put China in a, um, if not an adversarial, then at least a situation, a relationship of tension with the United States. So, you know... What does this mean practically? I mean, at some level, this is an intellectual argument about the democratic peace theory and, you know, uh, the end of history and so forth, which I'm happy to have, but probably aren't. Most people would, would put them to sleep. But um, I think from a kind of a policy perspective, there are a couple things to take away. One is that I don't think in the near to medium term this, this debate is necessarily all that significant. I'm, I used to work for Larry Silberman, a great American public servant, and, and he would always remind me that a lot of the the ideological uh, uh, initiatives of the Cold War also had strategic um, a logic, right? And I think that's the case here. So, so a lot of the things that Chris is talking about that, that could be justified under so-called so idealist grounds also have realist rationales, um, things to make the Communist Party more uncomfortable, uh, to, uh, uh, initi to um, uh, force it to incur risk and costs if it's more pushy in the international arena in ways that we don't like. Um, there are also things that we might just do because they're, we believe in them, religious liberty, the dignified treatment of human beings, and so forth, um, that whether or not they have a strategic logic, uh, realist or idealist. Um, so I think that actually this debate is not, it's not a fierce one, but I think it probably has something to do with how we look at timescales. Um, you know, I, I was just traveling in, in Asia, and one of the things that often come, came up was differences about how people say, you know, do we have to deal with the next 10 years? Is that the most dangerous period? Or are we looking at a, at a linear uh, kind of situation with China? I mean, there's people like David Shambaugh have been suggesting that China's about to go over a cliff, so there's sort of an economic rationale for that argument. But if you think that liberalization is likely just around the corner or could be, China could be put in that perspective, then you may see an, a, more, a, a more assertive play in the near term as making more sense. My, my view is the, the competition is likely to be enduring, so it's better to sort of gird our loins for the long haul and be firm, but not think that we can, um, you know, go put on the afterburner now and expect things to um, get dramatically better. I mean, in a sense, something like a 1991 is possible in China, but, you know, we might get 1991, but we might also get Putin. And, and, and a, a China that has a Putin is likely to, it's actually going to be less of a transition than the USSR to, to Putin. I mean, who knows what the future holds. But I think that we, we should be kind of more the slow and steady, um, a, lot, a lot faster and, and firmer than we've been doing in the, last few, in the last few years, for sure, but maybe more of a moderate um, uh, kind of pace that's designed to last us quite a long, quite a long time and, and, and puts us in a relationship where even a democratic China that doesn't see things exactly the way that we do 
is one that we can have, you know, apply similar policy tools towards. So with that, I, I heartily recommend you buy the book uh, and uh, look forward to discussing. Thank you, Bridge. I have a suggestion. Uh, we on the panel could ask Chris one or two questions and then encourage the audience to ask as many questions as they like. And while you're thinking of your questions for Chris, I have one uh, meant to be positive and accentuate why people should buy the book. Many times books are important because of the evidence and the sources they have. So that even you may not agree with the conclusions at the end. You may be an unreconstructed panda hugger or one of the, or the other poisonous camp that Professor Yu mentioned. Uh, but it seems to me we should ask Chris about the sources that are new in his book. And I will, I will lead the witness. You obviously, from your footnotes, visited China several times, and you have many uh, references to interviews. The uh, Academy of Governance, for example. Uh, a number of Chinese think tank uh, scholars provided information which you did not think was unimportant or unreliable. You used it in your, in your book. You also cite an awful lot of other China scholars' works over the years that you're in some sense using their material to reintegrate and argue a new case. But could you give us some examples, again, in terms of buying the book? What are the rich new things that are tucked away in your 100 pages of footnotes? I gave you a clue as to what I think was very important, the interviews you did in Beijing. Uh, well, in telling the story or trying to tell the story and understand China through the prism of how the story is told <laughs> in China of how they look at us, um, I viewed it as one of the most important parts of my research to focus on those who are viewed as, or the professional America watchers, if you will, uh, those who are viewed uh, as definitive and authoritative interpreters of the outside world to Chinese, uh -huh. uh, the people who, you know, in academic institutions, government think tanks, uh, and of course they don't just interview, they don't just answer interview calls from random Westerners walking through Beijing. Uh, they also write extensively in the Chinese press. They are quoted and relied upon not necessarily by leaders in the leadership compound in Zhongnanhai. Mm. Precisely what feeds into those decision-making algorithms is the subject, I hope, of a great deal of speculation at high levels in the U.S. intelligence community and elsewhere. Uh, it's very hard to penetrate that particular question from the outside. But in terms of how it is that the, the Chinese regime explains the outside world to other Chinese and to other members of, you know, in, in the sort of general leadership cadre of the very enormous party uh, structure of, of of organization, um, these are often people who are the sort of the, the go-to people. I mean, mm -hmm. it, there's, a, there's a usual suspects list who are always coming up in terms of Chinese press coverage. And I tried to talk to as many of them as I could in person, um, and spend a lot of time with translations of their work coming out of the Chinese press as well. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've tried to do is provide a very deep and broad look at how it is that the official interpreters of the United States to China um, have interpreted those very questions uh, over time, and more interestingly still in some ways how it has changed, and what the relationship has been between those changes and how it is that Chinese politics and the struggles that have been going on in China itself at the time have been. Um, that I think is, is probably the, uh, the value. I don't, I don't claim to have uncovered some you know, secret treasure trove of, uh, of documents that no one else has touched. I, I draw heavily upon other scholars' work. Um, there are some people like, um, uh, is it uh, uh, Anne-Marie Brady, for example, I think in New Zealand, if I recall where she's based, 
um, who has some extraordinary sources. I don't know who gives her her stuff, but uh, uh, she should be careful when she travels in China, I should think. Uh, she reads Chinese. She reads Chinese. Marie Brady. And yes. she has fantastic sources with regard to internal propaganda directives. You know, it's almost mm. as if a half a dozen people in various bureaucratic offices around China sort of immediately forward her all the emails they get from the central propaganda people mm -hmm. with the latest directive on how to treat this issue or how to treat that issue. The uh, China Media Project in Hong Kong um, takes very good advantage of the relative freedom of academic inquiry, mm -hmm. very considerable actually in Hong Kong that, David still, that still exists. Bendersky's yes. people, mm -hmm. absolutely. They have a wonderful website. I, don't, I haven't checked it for a little while since I've been occupied with my more recent jobs, but uh, um, a major source for material in this book was the, uh, the translations that they put up uh, routinely of stuff that they themselves also apparently mm -hmm. get from sources inside mm -hmm. the rest of, uh, of China. Very, very useful and interesting stuff. Um, so I would, I would identify those kinds of things. And it's not so much that these are not available. I haven't discovered things that no one else has ever had access to by any means. I, I'm a, you know, I, I don't speak Chinese or read Chinese. I, I am sort of a, uh, an assiduous collector and synthesizer more than I am an original, like, oh my God, document finder. Um, but I think putting these pieces together, and uh, at least I, I, I think it is done in ways in this book that at least that I have not seen elsewhere, um, mm -hmm. outside, uh, well, really anywhere. Um, Couldn't we also say that your materials are fresh? It's the last two or three years. Oh, I noticed the most recent footnotes are at least the end of 2014. Yes. So uh, you're reflecting current Chinese views based on your interviews, and I noticed a lot of the materials are 2012, 2013, 2014. That's correct. So you cannot be criticized for, oh, China might have been that way 10 years ago, but now they're more enlightened about America. Most of my, of the sources that I'm referring to in this respect come from the last handful of years um, that sort of are contemporaneous with and that post-date what I refer to in the book as the inflection point of sort of circa 2008. Uh, which is when I argue, at least, that uh, the long-standing Chinese calculation of strategic caution vis-a-vis -vis the United States began to tip in favor of the more confrontational uh, forces within the elite mm -hmm. and against the more traditional Deng Xiaoping-style mm -hmm. biders of time and hiders of capabilities. Um, I, in my view, the U.S. financial crisis, um, perceptions of our economic trouble and decline, the years of economic stagnation that have followed uh, the coming of a new U.S. administration committed to walking back U.S. military engagement in the world, um, years of, uh, I'm sorry to say it's a congressional staffer, the political dysfunction in Washington, no question about that too. Uh, resource problems, uh, spending challenges for the Defense Department and, uh, and many aspects of, of U.S. engagement overseas, budget challenges, shutdowns. These sorts of things, um, in, uh, in, in my argument, have helped tip a traditional tension. There's, for many years there's been a tension between those who sort of were more inclined to follow Deng's strategic cautious, you know, we're not quite ready for sort of a period of confrontation yet, let's kind of hang out mm -hmm. and be non-provocative until we're ready, versus those who are impatient. Mm -hmm. And a strategy of time-biting demands patience. I mean, mm -hmm. the essence of time-biting, this is not a, a, a peaceful strategy, we should emphasize that, I think. Uh, it conduced to peaceful relations for a long time. Um, but the essence of the sort of bide your time and hide your capabilities idea is it's predicated upon the idea that you are getting ready for some period of somewhat greater confrontation of some sort at some mm -hmm. point in the future. Um, so it's not a peaceful thing, it, but in the short term it conduces to pretty placid relations because you assume that you need time to build up your capabilities and therefore a congenial, smooth international relationship where you can you know, learn modernity from those who practice it with the most effect in the outside world so that you will someday be ready for something different, whatever that something different may be. Mm -hmm. So that strategy demands patience. It, it you know, sort of invokes aspirations of return to glory while asking people to whom you're talking to keep putting off actually realizing those dreams. 
And as it turned out, over time, as China's power grew, that patience ended up being in relative short supply. Mm -hmm. And over time, I think, and as I try to tell the story in the book, you see more and more tension between, uh, apparent tension between the sort of traditional, strategically cautious, uh, dungest time biters on the one hand, and what uh, Lu Xiaobo called uh, the boxers, uh, mm -hmm. more sort of confrontational uh, attitudes. And the patients wore thin, and I think the inflection point all of a sudden changed the dynamic of the, the risk calculation. It was important not to allow the negative narratives to utterly overwhelm strategic caution as long as the United States was strong and willful in the international arena and seemed to have things that China needed to learn and needed cooperative relations through which to learn. Um, okay. And the inflection point and our problems in the last few years, I think, helped tip the balance against that. We no longer so obviously have things, as it's viewed in Beijing, to teach them. Um, that, you know, therefore, they no longer need quite the same kind of smooth international relationship uh, to acquire the strength they need. Uh, we are less able to challenge them, and it's, you know, on the whole, comparatively costless. And that's sort of what the confrontational sort of, you know, boxers, as Lu Jabel called it, that's what the boxers needed in the internal debates. And I think it's not mm -hmm. a coincidence that you see things swinging much more in favor in the direction of, of sort of semi-belligerent self-assertiveness uh, in the years since then. So, my, so back to the sources, the sources are mostly about So we can say hot, period, fresh, so. new material. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Right. I notice you don't have a publisher's, uh, this is not a commercial publisher. So he did not give you a big banner and some prose on the back that says, this is fresh and hot and new and will change your views of how I, China looks I at the West. I don't recall those discussions. It, it doesn't <laughs> slice bread. It will not cure aging. Uh, but I hope it's a good, interesting read. If I could, Miles, are you, you going to have a question? I'm sorry, can I just say one quick thing? Chris's book? One quick thing about, uh, about Bridges' comments. And, and I, I don't think I disagree well, you, with you him You feel you should get to reply to the commentators' I hope that's comments? All right. even uh, that was they, my question anyway. So even they, largely, they largely yeah. praised you in the book. So well, I was actually going to sort of <laughs> praise Bridges' insightful critique um, and to say that I don't think I actually disagree as much as, uh, as one might think. Um, I, I, I don't know the answer mm. to how idealist American conceptions are of China or mm. what the implications of that might be. I raise the question mm. because I think it's very important. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's a binary one either. Mm -hmm. It's not that we are entirely yeah. realist or entirely right. idealist. The answer is obviously somewhere in the middle. And the operational question, both from a U.S. strategic perspective and from a Chinese perspective, will be to what degree is that the case. I mean, I think it's clearly true that a you know, at some, whenever that may, might happen, a liberal democratic China would considerably lessen the tensions. Um, by you know, to, to that extent, I think we are idealists. But how mm. much? And mm -hmm. would they go away? I, I, I don't know, and they would not, of course, completely go away. And the question is, where along that continuum we fall? And, and that's, I think it's an open question, rather than one on which I would dare to, to venture uh, an opinion. And I liked your point about timing as well. Um, and I would, one of the things that I would, in, in the spirit of planning against a landscape of different alternative futures, I would urge that we not repeat the mistake of the last several decades, and particularly of the 1990s, um, in, or in the 80s as well to some extent, um, in hardwiring our strategy around assumptions uh, that things, that, you know, sort of the, the forces of history are on our side. I think one of the major problems in the U.S.-China policy community has been sort of a self-flattering assumption that democratic peace theory will inevitably prevail as a kind of inevitable hydraulic force of history. Um, and we don't have to worry about actually having a strategy because if we simply sit back, the inevitable dynamics of, of development will equally inevitably conduce to liberal democratic politics. Uh, you know, if you believe that history is on your side in that kind of an immediate fashion, uh, I think that is and has been used in the United States, whether intentionally or otherwise, I don't know as an excuse to have no strategy at all. 
I think we are deeply remiss as strategic planners if we do not plan against alternative Chinas, including alternative Chinas, which don't go at all as we anticipate them going. Uh, and if we are not building strategies on that basis, we are making, I think, a very dangerous, uh, a dangerous mistake. So um, that's my two cents. But thank you for, for <laughs> both of you for your, your comments and insights. Nina? I only have one uh, complimentary, uh, uh, basically a compliment to what uh, he, he just said, uh, Chris just said, uh, about uh, why the question he raised is very important, that is why China turned suddenly aggressive. Uh, less cautious as Deng Xiaoping's uh, time uh, with the witness. Uh, one of the reasons why I think it has something to do with our overall uh, policies in Asia Pacific. If you look at if you look at the uh, if you look at the timing and what China was saying, I know part of the, this book also reflects that. Uh, is our policy in Asia Pacific, particularly with regard to the conflicts that China was involved? That is, our ultimate objective is peace and stability. We spent we said it many many times. Now, if you're an aggressive person, if you know the per only person who can make it, uh, a person of consequence who can stop all this fighting, uh, his goal is just do not fight. Ultimately, it's peace and stability. And you're gonna push the envelope. You're gonna push the envelope knowing that the Americans' ultimate policy is to stop fighting. No matter who is uh, at fault, we don't care about that. So that's why one of the reasons why China see that weakness that, that of that policy, and they keep pushing the envelope. In the end, they know that U.S. were not going to resort to fight anyway because we're we are basically uh, an extremely um, uh, casualty averse nation. I mean, I <laughs> I I teach at a military institution. I mean, I know that has been so corrosive in our warrior mentality. Our our definitive. Uh, uh, answer to what constitutes a victory is a Kosovo war, where we don't we didn't lose one single soldier. That's why we strive to. If we have ten people killed in Afghanistan today, it will become national news. We'll change the policy. That's bizarre. Observe. Uh, I'm a historian, military historian by training, so I know that that this is very dangerous um, for us. China sees that, so they keep doing, keep pushing the envelope. And keeping no, uh, and also another thing is, notice what China was toughest about. And who are the, who are the nasty, most uh, nastiest with? Uh, they're Japan and the Philippines. Why? Because those are two countries happen to be America's only uh, country of mutual uh, defense ally, allies there. So their ultimate goal is to kick the US out of Western Pacific by breaking the military alliance. So Vietnam, yes, Vietnam was fought really, but Vietnam can always negotiate. China has never been totally tough with the Vietnamese. So I don't, I don't detect any question for Chris Ford. <laughs> well, my question, the, 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 I'm just, uh, uh, I say as a compliment what he said. You know, <laughs> add, add that. Okay. okay, it's getting time for audience questions. Are you ready? I have one uh, observation to make about this panel. Of the four of us, I am the panda hugger. <laughs> uh, I do not agree uh, with the conclusion that there's that congeniality doesn't pay off. There is actually a good case, and I hope it will happen at the summit in two weeks, to expand the military exchange program with China. It's already grown uh, tripled or more in the last couple of years. A huge amount of misunderstanding on the part of the Chinese military can be reduced by increased exchange programs. I'm also in favor of a number of other panda hugger positions 
So I don't want you to go away thinking all four of us were in harmony about, you know, there's no hope with the way China looks at America now. I think, as Congressman Forbes said, there's an obsession, and this is in your book too, Chris, there's an obsession in China with the Americans and what they're doing. So it is possible, I think, for us to make our relationship with China much, much worse, much, much worse, and to provoke them into much higher levels of defense spending, to acquire weapons that are far more dangerous for us than they have now, if we are too tough and too firm with the Chinese. If we go to the point of offending them and what they call uh, their dignity being harmed in this summit, we will pay a serious cost for it. So Chris may say, oh, I agree with you, but I don't think he really does. I think he's much more concerned in this book about the need for us to pay less attention to the Chinese narrative in a way that we can hurt, we cannot hurt their feelings. So I'm, make, I'm giving my dissent here, which I hope will increase the sales of your book, because people will say, well, we want to read more of a red-blooded American book, you know, not a panda-hugger <laughs> point of view. Okay, first question. I, I would back worry that, back. that hurting Chinese feelings is a little bit like uh, work in the modern office space. It will hurt feelings will expand to fill the space available to them. And so we should be very cautious about how much space we allow hurt feelings to influence our So people our should buy this book, right, to <laughs> understand. It's here in okay. the audience. Back in the back, you have your microphone already in hand. Do we need microphones when you ask a question so we can record yeah, you? Yeah, uh, I'm with VOA Mandarin. Uh, I have You're a, what? I'm with Voice of America. I would like to ask uh, uh, panelists up there on the fundamental question whether we know, the United States knows how to apply that firmness using a couple of examples. Uh, one is the South China Sea. On one hand, we saw the United States invited the press to board the reconnaissance airplane to see how we operating over there. Um, on the other hand, the Pentagon refused to tell us whether the United States has sailed um, or will sail within 12 miles of these artificially built islands, even though the United States does not recognize the sovereignty. The so Voice of America has a question for you, Chris, about the nature of the toughness and firmness you have in mind. So would would if it I include going into Chinese-claimed territorial waters in the South China Sea? That's how I would interpret your sure. question for those who can't hear you. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, uh, we, we see on, in, in the Bering Sea that the United States has allowed uh, the Chinese ships to enter the U.S. territorial waters without deeming as, uh, uh, you know, other than innocent. So deemed as innocent passage. So I am troubled by uh, this, you know, how this, you know, policy of, uh, applied here. So I wonder if the panelists can tell us whether we are confused uh, about, you know, how firm we want to apply this. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, we just don't know. Uh, maybe we are. Maybe they are confused as I am. You Thank you. Have several questions in a row, or just do one at a time? Is it going to be directed at you? We can probably collect them. Um, but let me just, for the sake of argument, okay. while I'm thinking of it, let me just try to respond to you there. Um, great question. Do we know how to apply firmness? I mean, I myself wouldn't presume to say that I know all the answers in terms of policy recipes. I have some suggestions that I think people, I, I would argue, people should think about, and it'd be part of our calculations. But you know, my most sort of emphatic call would be not, you know, everyone should do exactly what I say should be done, but more that to, to be myself drawing attention to the need to be thinking in those ways, for there to be a much more explicit and deep and thoughtful dialogue 
about how to develop policy approaches that in fact do meet the needs of a true competitive strategy. I don't necessarily have all those answers, and I don't, I don't think any single person does. What I would love to do, however, is to help catalyze much more of a debate in our strategic policy community about how to do that and get that, you know, help encourage that being, being underway. There may be, you know, at the end of the day, the right answer may be something that I can't foresee now or maybe disagree with right now if you were to ask me. I don't know. But I think the biggest answer is that we need to be bloody well thinking about how to do these things much better than we have been. Um, your question about sort of uh, uh, freedom of navigation issues, uh, I think one of the things that distinguishes constructive firmness from provocative firmness, uh, to sort of take Mike's point about not wanting to do too much either, um, you know, I'm certainly not advocating an absolutely hell for leather confrontational approach on our, on our side either. Um, I think we need, I mean, one of the keys to making firmness useful is one of them, probably many of them, but is consistency. Um, we have been emphatic that we, you know, about our freedom of navigation missions over very many years in places as far flung as the former Soviet Union to the, you know, the Gulf of Sidra to wherever else. Um, we have asserted this position again now in the South China Sea, and to our credit, that's quite a proper position to take. Um, we are less consistent, it would appear, from the outside at least, in how we live out uh, that policy declaration. Uh, it's not clear that we are, in fact, living up to our promises of keeping the freedom of navigation thing going within our understanding and the rest of the world's understanding of international legal norms in the South China Sea. Uh, while we seem to be fairly relaxed about insisting even upon 12-mile sovereignty uh, up in the North Pacific. So I think the inconsistency could be terribly damaging, especially if it results in the conclusion on the, on the part of potential adversaries that, well, we're not really all that serious about this. After all, it's just a rhetorical talking point rather than a real policy. And oh, by the way, their commitment to these international norms and values and things that, that we should be, if they're not compliant with them, we should be shaming the Chinese regime for having failed to observe. Um, consistency is a virtue, and I fear that we are in danger of squandering that, uh, uh, that opportunity. Uh, I'd like to uh, answer the question since it deals with somewhat, somewhat with the Navy. Uh, you know, uh, there are two issues here. One is uh, uh, this whole issue of irrecoverable uh, consistency. I'm talking about the clarity. Uh, uh, one of the biggest problems we've had is uh, the encouraged aggression uh, worldwide is the, the so-called uh, strategic ambiguity. We won't tell you what U.S. would do if you do A, B, and C. Um, well, it has basically a uh, reflection of two uh, realities. One is that uh, uh, U.S. is the only country of consequence. Uh, that's why we, our U.S. Navy is very strong and the strongest Navy in the world, and we are the country that can basically decide what will or will not happen in places like South China Sea. Uh, Knowing that, uh, if our policy is not very clear, on one hand, you, you had an assistant secretary of state, Daniel Russell, went to the Congress and said, you know, we do not recognize the legitimacy of China's nine-dash line. So we do, not, we do not recognize the legitimacy, legal basis, uh, of China's claim in the South China Sea. On the other hand, uh, you don't follow through. So uh, uh, the, what, what does that mean? Uh, uh, the 12-mile sovereign water China say, we create an uh, artificial island there. 12 miles around that, it's ours. If you say we don't recognize your claim in the South China Sea, that means US worship could go through there because we don't recognize yours. We don't do that. And that's basically ambiguity. And that's really, really is, is unfortunate. Another point is, is historical precedent. Uh, 1931, when Japan invaded Chinese Manchuria, um, 
And uh, the League of Nations was pretty weak. The U.S. policy was what? Non-recognition. We don't recognize Japanese uh, invasion of Manchuria. Uh, that basically, you know, didn't say much because the U.S. was deeply isolationist. We, we we're not going to go to war with Japan, even though the policymakers in Washington knew it was very, very dangerous uh, if this trend continued. Sure enough, inaction of Washington and the rest of the world basically encouraged Japanese aggression. What you have here is uh, basically, you know, uh, Pearl Harbor and U.S. getting into the war. So basically, it's very important for people in Washington to read books like this and to know the long-term consequences of inaction and ambiguity. Uh, so that's basically uh, um, my point to your, and the, the Chinese know this. I mean, the, uh, I don't think that uh, uh, sailing within the U.S. Uh, uh, so sovereign water within 12 miles of coastline of Alaska was accidental. It was basically well-timed and sent a very strong message. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say, um, I mean, I think Chris's point is right about, you know, the need to, to balance, and I, I don't agree with Mike's characterization, but I, I think there is, um, you know, there, 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 we need to balance and we need to, we do have an interest in stability, a favorable stability, but of course in stability. I mean, I, the South China Sea is a really tough problem, and I don't envy the decision makers who are tasked with figuring out how to respond to China's very clever and astute and, and sort of um, adaptive strategy. But it does seem to me if we don't recognize the claims, um, then why aren't we sailing within 12 nautical miles and, and daring them to do it? Because, you know, both of us know that right now, and, and for the near term at least, the, and presumably the medium term, we hope, uh, the U.S. has the military advantage, and so China is presumably not going to walk down that, that path. So the question is one of resolve. And people in the region are, are watching. And I think at this moment, um, it's, a, it's actually a quite important moment. This gets again to the time issue, Chris, is countries in the region, in Southeast Asia and beyond throughout the Asia, Indo-Asia Pacific, are, are ascertaining whether it is prudent to affiliate with the United States and at least in, in some terms or in some portions of their policy balance China. Um, and that is a and it's only responsible and reasonable to, to, to work to balance China if the United States is going to stick around because the rest of the countries of the region can't, don't have a sufficient power and won't have sufficient power to balance China in the future without it, basically, to be simplified. So it's very important for the U.S. to show resolve now. And, and the South China Sea is becoming one of those, I don't want to use the word tests, but it's becoming a, word, um, a, a kind of, um, uh, you know, a forum where people are, 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 are judging. And I think that right now we're, we're, not, we're not meeting the standard. And there are clearly voices in the U.S. government that are pushing for it. And I think, from what I can tell, they're right. I also like to uh, uh, disagree with uh, uh, the eminent uh, Dr. Uh, Pillsbury a little bit. Uh, slightly. It's good to have a debate. See, it's yeah. better to have a panel well, here's than the a debate. Here's the thing. It's not about uh, <laughs> whether you want to be nice or, or uh, congenial or not uh, to foreign guests. I mean, that's, that's not a question. So I don't consider myself as a dragon slayer or panda hugger. But, Sometimes yes, but yes or no? Yes or no? U.S. Navy ships should go inside the 12-mile zone of these claimed Chinese features Bridge says yes. I happen to say yes myself. I say yes. You, you have to yes. go there because the U.S. government no. has already made it. Chris said no. He said maybe. He wants to balance consistently. Because we don't. Re you can't. He was. You can't build. You, build you, have not, you have not been to interagency meetings in the White House. I have. Yeah. You put your hand up. The president well, says, which, okay, Bridge, yes, go. Miles, no, you're against it. Or maybe you're a yes. Chris is a maybe. Now it's a split vote. This was is a very yes important no, point for the I last page of your book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think well, we have four to... yeses. You, on behalf of the Navy, you're willing to say yes, Miles. 
Well, can, I, can I just uh, finish no, my thought? No, you're not talking to the uh, Voice uh, of America question. I'm the answering your question. The duty is to get you to answer the question. Okay, yes sure. or no, Navy ships through the 12 miles. If we don't sea. recognize that as a Chinese territory, U.S. Navy ships, yes, it's international uh, water. There's no question in my mind that we should go there. How about while President Xi is in Washington? Well, that's basically, you no. Know, remember what Congressman Randy Forbes said at the beginning, which is, I think is very, very insightful. China pol Chinese pol making policy, to a large degree, depends on how U.S. policy is made. They want to see how our policy is formulated so they can adjust to that. And it's like a it's like a shadow boxing Chinese style. So you're a yes in the next two weeks then before President. Well, I think Xi that's comes? a different question. It's so not. Think, it's, uh, Mike is not. I'm not arguing with you. I'm not arguing with you. One I'm not of his saying. Points uh, at the end of the book is congeniality. Okay, the president of China. Right, but I think Mike. Congeniality there, is not for the sake of congeniality. When issue of principle, American prestige, international law is at stake. You cannot be congenial about that. You can be congenial. To the Chinese president, he's a, he's an honored guest here. You can definitely talk about national okay, pride, I be say, respectful, I but you can respectfully disagree. Goes home. Okay, I no, I think that I think that's. I would love to take a break from Beijing. the Hannity show and have another question. So, How about that? <laughs> US, USTR question. <laughs> Charles Horner, was your hand up? Okay. Microphone's coming up here in front. I think. Anyway, I thank you. I've been listening to this and I'm quite amazed because we have succeeded in trade policy. It was mentioned very quickly in trade. For whatever reason, China agreed to abide by international norms when it joined the World Trade Organization. Until that time, the U.S. could not actively, effectively retaliate against China, but we had too much domestic interest, too much trade flowed in either direction, so every time we did anything. But China joined the World Trade Organization. We have been very firm. We bring more cases against China. Their hands are tied. We have been very firm on currency. There's been a little movement recently, but they have followed through on this thing. So the only question I would ask, and I know military defense people don't visit USTR too often and so on, but I would just simply say there is a court of justice discussing this whole question of uh, nine, 12-mile limits and so on, et cetera. I don't know where that's going. I don't know where the U.S. position is. But my assumption, just reading in on the subject, is let that make a ruling, that group, and then we'll make sure it's enforced because you don't have the enforcement in WTO. But this idea of sending you a – I don't want to say it. It was ridiculous to say I'm going to send my ships – while the president of China is there, if you want to have a war with somebody, you send the ships in the next two weeks, and my grandchildren will go to Canada. But the only thing I would appreciate is that's, that's not at all a serious reaction. Thank you. Well, certainly for, for my part, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to see what happens with the, uh, the Philippine case uh, in the South China Sea. Um, it is, in legal terms, a pretty narrowly circumscribed case. It will certainly, I mean, even if it were clear in its judgment and it were emphatically enforced by the entirety of the international community, it would technically speaking, solve only the smallest portion of the overall disputes there. But it's certainly, a, I think it was a great idea for them to move forward. Um, I think that is another example of ways in which, um, in, in this case, a very sort of uh, formally appropriate and uh, you know, congenial, if you will, um, way to, to press back uh, against Chinese expansion. Um, the idea that they are out of sync with international norms, that it is, it is shameful and discreditable to be behaving in a certain way. Is, a, is an idea that is not without some traction. 
Um, one of the points that I emphasize both in my first book, which I do notice is also for sale back there, called The Mind of Empire, um, which is a, a sort of a long meditation on Chinese conceptions of global order. But a, a theme I also pick up in this book, which is in many ways a follow-on to the first one, um, is, you know, is to make the point that, that, that Chinese conceptions of, uh, of global order and their view and the, their role in the world are not, you know, this is not North Korea, in which they just don't give a darn what people think of them. They care deeply um, what people think of them. And it's actually inherent, sure. I think, in their conception of, of political authority, um, that political authority is sort of co-joined with and actually grows out of moral authority. And they don't have a lot of moral authority, but they need to say that they do. And it needs to appear in their own discourse that they do. And so things like the international community bringing them to court for violations of well-understood international legal standards can be very powerful. It's not a cure-all. And there is a, you know, it's not going to substitute for a robust forward defense posture where that is needed by any means. But it's a part of the mix. And I think we should not forget that those kinds of remedies are, are indeed, uh, yeah. indeed important. I, I, I'm glad you raised that question, and I uh, don't consider me as a as a warmonger. Uh, and and here's here's a, here's the reason why. Uh, uh, I've been observing Chinese Navy for many years. Um, uh, not at one moment did I believe the Chinese Navy wants to fight a war with the United States. They know it. We know it. Uh, and uh, two months ago, uh, I was with the Chinese delegation. Uh, um, to the Chinese Navy, and, and they allow us to go to their DDG, their destroyers. And I see their destroyer is not our destroyer, and there's no match there. Uh, so the question really is, uh, as, as I say, U.S. is the only country of consequence. Uh, if we don't act, I, I know the uh, global policeman is a bad term, but in this case, there, if there's no policeman, you could turn out like in a part of New York City, you know, or Baltimore. It's a very dangerous place to be. So there is a... Uh, uh, the collective uh, will in that general area to want the U.S. to be there to act like a policeman. So if policemen don't act, the chaos will ensue. The aggressor, the criminal, will, will, will commit the bad crimes. So, uh, so this is this is the case. I think they really want to see what the U.S. Navy is going to do. And we, if we don't uh, seize the opportunity to act according to international law, not for the sake of confronting China per se. I don't think they really, really want to fight a war with, with the U.S. Uh, considering the Americans' uh, preponderance of military strength in that area. So it is ultimately boils down to our will. Now, there's another very important thing. If we don't act decisively, not just the, uh, 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 irresponsibly, but according to law, international law, regional allies will lose confidence in ours. Japan, Philippines, everybody will go start doing their own thing. It's far more dangerous if the regional allies get into a, a arms race with China because they can act without immunity, knowing the Americans will not do it. Uh, and South Korea is also another case. So there's a far more strategic uh, implication than, uh, than just like a not conflict in China in, in terms of inaction. And inaction, not just the irresponsible inaction. Uh, action. Uh, it just has a lot of a very long-term strategic concept. And now, if you look at what Japan is doing, look at the Philippines doing, everybody's arming up. If our defense commitment to those allies remain firm and unambiguous, I think that degree of worry would reduce. And for long-term, and that's much better for regional stability, and for the U.S. as well. So your case will not go to let fight me, let, me, let, me, let me for China. Let, yeah. me, let, me, let me respond. Um, Couple, couple points. First of all, uh, you know trade better than I do, but my understanding is that China's political economic picture is definitely not one that we're content with. I mean, there's large-scale intellectual property theft going on with China, and 
WTO membership hasn't solved it. Now, WTO membership may have been the right step, you know, writ large. Um, I, you know, it seems to me it probably was, and I think you're right that a lot of the inducements that we have are, are, are you know, are better than the alternative. But it's the economic and trade picture is a big problem. Second of all, it's a commonplace in the political science literature and elsewhere that um, that the economic sphere is different than the security sphere. Countries just you know conceptually and also historically are much more. Uh, willing to uh, submit themselves to international adjudication in the, in the trade and economic field. And I think that that's very much the case here. To that point, I think Chris's point is absolutely right. Chinese are sensitive to international perceptions, but they're a lot less sensitive than they are sensitive to direct force. And again, I think this is a question of, of proportion. I'm not, in, as I made clear, I'm not in favor of a hyperactive policy, but I think that the danger now is that they, they see us as insufficiently resolute and, the, and, the, and the, the directions going their way. So I think Chris's point is that we should play out the Filipino dispute, although that's absolutely a relatively narrow thing. But, you know, bear in mind the Chinese have defined the South China Sea as a core national interest, along with Taiwan and, you know, Tibet and other places. And, of course, don't recognize the jurisdiction. Yeah, and don't recognize the, the jurisdiction. Country, yeah. So, you know, jaw, jaw. Um, so I think, you know, we need what to be firm, but we need Philippine to play out. The, I think on, on Miles' really point, I differ a bit. I think, I think the trend lines are not... Uh, do not, should not give us such confidence as, as he seems to have about the military balance in the region, which is getting considerably uh, more dangerous. I think we have the advantage now, but I worry about what the Chinese are going to be like in 10, 15 years when a lot of these capabilities that we've now seen uh, in the parade the other day, for instance, become much more mature. They've moved on to uh, different systems and they have the military advantage. So I think our objective should not be to make our allies like Japan uh, do less. Actually, part of the reason that we should be resolute and firm now is to make sure that they do more so that we can balance China's, China's rise. Because I think the alternative, actually, if China gets the upper hand, is they may not spend on, def well, one possibility is they go get nuclear weapons. It's unlikely for a number of reasons, at least things get really, unless things get really bad. But the other possibility is that they end up just acceding to Chinese hegemony in the region, which is presumably not what we want, and then they don't spend. So, th so the reality is that what we're likely to face is a tough competition, and, and we gotta, we got to get in, in that, but, but we're not going to return to the world of the 1990s. Yeah. Just one, one, more, one more point here. Uh, China, more, more than any, any country in the world, border, when it comes to China, border 14 countries, more than any country in the world. Every one of the countries has some point, with the possible exception of Pakistan, has border disputes with China. I say Pakistan is possible because China occupies about one eighth of, of Kashmir. So if Pakistan claims Kashmir, and then there's a border dispute. China has six maritime nations. China has maritime dispute with every one of them. So you're thinking about this. This is a very dangerous world, and there, there, there is that that's that's hot spot. So we can resort to international organizations such as UN uh, to have the dispute over there. But China does not want to resort to international dispute. Uh, uh, arbitrary. There's absolutely no uh, uh, no no chance for them to do it. So the only country that can make a difference, in my view, is U.S. and its ally. In so we have to act responsibly, but with a very uh, grim understanding of Quick inaction. Yeah. Mike has appropriately chided me that I need to let other people ask questions. Quick footnote. There I'm are glad six minutes to go, and I'm, seven hands are up. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned trade. I, I, because I advise you of that, including your former colleague of, I, yes, at indeed. Hudson, Charles Warner, who also wrote a book on China, also paid for by Andy Marshall. Right. He's been waving his microphone in the air for nine minutes now. So, so he and I are both former Senate staffers, and we suspect some kind of filibuster is going on. <laughs> well, and now, and now it's eight minutes, so let me try to get in just a couple of seconds before we, we turn to that. Um, 
I'm glad you mentioned trade because that highlights another challenge of our strategy making with respect to China. Um, we, you know, it's commonly said in the Chinese press, oh, the Americans just want to have another enemy like the Soviet Union. The problem with our China strategy right now is precisely that is not the situation we face. With the Soviets, we faced a fairly unambiguous competitive and almost purely competitive situation. The challenge of dealing with China with a, from a competitive strategy perspective right now is that it is not entirely competitive, not entirely adversarial. If it were, frankly, it would be a lot simpler as an intellectual matter. Um, the challenge is that there are both cooperative elements and competitive elements in the relationship. We've never actually had to do that kind of a thing before as strategy makers on any kind of a scale. Um, that is the game that we are trying to learn by making it up as we go along. Um, it's hard. Um, I want to emphasize the competitive stuff because I think we've been falling down in that respect much more than we've been falling down on the cooperative side and the economic and trade worlds to some extent. But you know, they're both important. So, sorry. Anyway. My apologies for And if we buy your book, this will be covered in the last chapter, as a matter of fact. Some of it, yes. <laughs> okay, Mr. Horner, Dr. Horner. Uh, I'm Charles Horner, also of Hudson Institute. I do have a question for Chris Ford that has, was inspired, actually, by something I heard from the panel, and I'll mention that in a moment. Three quick points. Full disclosure requires me to report that I, along with Miles, you as uh, one of the people asked by the University of uh, Kentucky uh, Press to review this book. <laughs> so the, the right-wing, oh uh, which I heartily recommended its publication, the right-wing conspiracy may not necessarily be vast, but it is well-placed <laughs> uh, sometimes. Second point I'd like to stress is something that Chris said about his own book, first <laughs> book, The Mind of Empire, which I think establishes a wonderful template for the current book. It is a long discussion of the Chinese sense of the world, how the world works, what the world order is, and so on, of which this second volume is in some respect uh, an elaboration. Third, very briefly, about the utility of a panel of this sort, a report from the field. There is in Los Angeles an organization called the Pacific Council on International Relations, which is a kind of council on foreign relations of the West Coast. And a while ago, they invited me to participate in its annual conference. And this very morning, in response to constant prodding from me, they said, in response to my inquiry, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, we want you to be on a panel. And there'll be some people on this panel. We want you to take somewhere between five and seven minutes to describe what you think the United States grand strategy toward China ought to be. And so now I have all this stuff to boil down to approximately six minutes. And I'm sure something will come of it, but it speaks uh, very nicely to Miles' point about the need of three days of, uh, of expertise. We could describe all that needs to be done in six minutes. Should we collect the rest of the comments and then we can cherry pick yes. stuff at the very end? Is yeah. that a useful? My, sure. My, my question is to Chris. It's inspired by what Mike, what Mike said about the fact that we could be too tough, uh, too discourteous, too provocative, and thereby provoke the Chinese into behavior we would not like. Is there anyone in China that you could identify as having participating in a comparable discussion which would go something like, you know these Americans, if we're too discourteous, too provocative, too assertive, we just might provoke them into producing weapons we would not like to see, into behavior we would not like to confront. Is this part of the debate in China, do you think? And if not, uh, uh, why not? That is to say, they seem to be insufficiently from all I know, they seem to be insufficiently afraid of our, of our irrationality, of our ability to be provoked, of our ability to uh, 
have uh, a slights, endorse slights to our uh, national reputation, our amoprope, and so on. And I'm curious to know whether there are such people in China who caution them about the uh, propensity of Americans to take out their don't tread on me flag from time to time and uh, disrupt the international system. Can we collect some? And it's up to you. You want to answer, Charles? Or there, since there are a lot of people out there, why don't we, if, if, if those of you who remain, maybe we can Three minutes to go. collect a couple of additional questions and we can just sort of toss in really quick uh, stuff. There's uh, down here, I don't know. Uh, I hands up, hands up. We went down here. In front. Right here, two in the front row. I, I, know, I know we've been bad wrong. about this, but yes. in terms of keeping our own comments brief, but uh, we would <laughs> encourage you to try to keep the questions brief. Okay, so, um, so I'm with the China Daily, and my question is, um, how do you make sure your research about for the book um, reflect the true color of China? How do you make sure they're authentic enough? And also, what do you think about the incoming um, Chinese president Xi's visit um, to the U.S., what do you think will make a difference to the future of U.S.-China uh, relations? Thanks. Uh, Stephen Piper, Independent. Uh, was the uh, September 3 uh, transit of the bearing of the U.S. territorial waters a naval adjunct of the military uh, demonstration display in uh, Beijing? And secondly, should we uh, take some sides on sovereignty regarding uh, disputed territories? And one more hand, maybe someone gave up and left, I'm afraid. <laughs> back in the back, there was one more question. Okay, so those two. Um, let me see, real quickly. Uh, individual Chinese, Charles. Uh, I, at the top of my head, I don't have names on the tip of my tongue. However, in the book, there are a number of references to people in, you know, sort of America, the occasional America Watcher. Now, they're not very common, but the occasional America Watcher uh, with whom I spoke or whose article I happened to come across who was, uh, was taking a somewhat more cautious, like, gosh, we need to make sure we don't get going too fast yet kind of perspective. Um, I did have some people affiliated with military think tanks, for example, in person tell me at the time, and I think my first interviews there were in 2011, that they were concerned that some of the early, uh, you know, the, 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 that was in the period of, uh, I think that was sort of the Scarborough Shoal standoff in the mm -hmm. South China Sea and that kind of thing, um, that they were concerned that... Uh, well, they didn't put it in these terms, but the idea was that China might be sort of uh, stopping biding its time a little too early. Um, they didn't suggest that this was a misbegotten project in the first place, but they thought that the timing might be wrong and that it might be still too early to provoke the other countries of the region to coalesce uh, against China. They were worried about that, and one of them said something to the effect of how, you know, I'm concerned that we might be, you know, might, have, uh, might be overreaching a little bit. But, uh, so there, there seem to be some voices to that effect, although, you know, not nearly as many as you might think under the circumstances. Um, response to the, uh, the question from uh, our colleague from China Daily here, um, how to make, uh, how confident am I in the research? I actually spend the first couple of chapters focusing on the problem of what I call Chinese epistemology. How is it that we think we know what we think we know uh, in doing research on China? Um, and I'm acutely aware of the problem of trying to reach conclusions about what people really think uh, in an information space that is so carefully uh, bounded and controlled. Uh, it's not easy to control for the modern party state, but it is uh, certainly not uh, free in the sense that we're accustomed to uh, speaking and writing and having discussions here. Um, and I try to address those issues uh, by facing them head on at the beginning of the book. And one of the answers I have to it is that I don't have deep confidence that I know what people really think. 
in that system, it is very hard to know anything about what people really think, unless one has perhaps a very close friend with whom one has a drink uh, quietly on the side uh, in some unaccountable context. Um, but what I've tried to do is look at the official propaganda narrative and try to use it as a way to eliminate what the regime's priorities are and how those priorities relate to politics and how the story of America as interpreted to Chinese has changed uh, in connection with ongoing debates and struggles and challenges in China itself. Um, that is something on which there is knowledge in the sense that you know, whatever they really think, it is clearly a part of the regime's legitimacy discourse that certain things be said, certain things be not said or suppressed, certain positions be taken and that kind of thing. And what I try to do is learn from the development of the overt narrative uh, and use that as a window into what Chinese politics seem to be going on uh, you know, through that prism. But, uh, but the, the problem of epistemology is very real and challenging in anybody doing research in China. Um, and I would hope that other China scholars would, well, I don't think all China scholars writing on these issues today are sufficiently cautious in this respect. It is too common for think tank counterparts to be taken as if they were just think tank counterparts as opposed to government salaried people who are subject to propaganda vetting and guidance just the same way as anybody else is in China and whose career has involved them rising through ladders of seniority at each of which points they have to survive a uh, organization department uh, uh, approval chop for reliability and trustworthiness. Um, I think we take those things for granted in dealing with our supposed counterparts. That goes for academics as well as think tankers. Um, I think we are too credulous on certain political topics when it comes to public opinion surveys and looking at media uh, in China, insofar as although it is much more difficult to control the Chinese media space than it used to be, uh, and the government has largely given up in certain respects, a lot of sort of cultural and entertainment type issues are more or less fair game uh, for anyone these days. It's a much freer aggregate space than it used to be. But on particular issues of sensitivity and the American narrative is one of those issues of the greatest sensitivity in these kinds of big picture political and geopolitical stuff. Those are issues that are just as controlled or the, the, the regime spends at least as much time as ever trying to control those things. And they remain controlled enough that I think getting down through to what people really think in their heart of hearts is very challenging. But you can still learn a lot from looking at it. Sorry, John? Uh, I'd like to answer your question about whether US should take side in sovereignty issue. Uh, sovereignty issue is very complicated. Chi as I said, China has multiple border disputes with the, with the, with the people, virtually everybody on the border. Uh, uh, I don't think it's a clear cut yes or no. On some issues uh, that involve international law, U.S. interest, and alliance, U.S. should take an issue. For example, the Senkakus and the South China Sea. Uh, because U.S. Uh, some of the border uh, issues were directly involved by the Ameri uh, with Americans. Senkaku was, uh, was occupied by the, by the U.S. Navy since the end of World War II. It was not returned to the Japanese until 1971 or 72. Uh, so, and the U.S. even paid rent. U.S. Navy used those uh, islands as a, as a, as a uh, bombing target. So U.S. pay rent, annual rent, to the owner, uh, Japanese owners on one of the islands. So, so there's no question about this. Uh, uh, U.S. should take a side. When, when we say we don't take a side, and then uh, we also say when Senkaku was attacked, the U.S. will be fighting with the Japanese. So for the Chinese, that's hypocrisy. So that's one of the reasons why we should be clarified. We're going to take that. I'm glad some uh, administration officials did take that last time. On, China, on South China, say yes, we should, because this is international law, and everybody uh, abide by it. Uh, on some other issues like India, China, and uh, you know, um, North Korea and Chinese border dispute on the on the, the Bakdu Mountains, obviously we shouldn't get involved. Let them fight. So, uh, 
So that's basically is 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 my answer. Uh, the question that the, this uh, general lady from Ch China Daily uh, is uh, very important about the how do you know what China actually think? Chris uh, answered the question. I'll give you one example. Uh, Chinese had the official biographer of Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. He was a really high-ranked uh, uh, um, uh, official. His name is Gao Wenqian. Uh, Gao Wenqian wrote an official biographer of Mao and uh, Zhou, and he had access to all those archives. But he had to part, part, uh, follow the party line to write his biography. After all the books are published, he felt like, I can't really tell what I really think about this gentleman. After I, I read all the stuff, guess what he did? He wanted to write a book. He fled to New York City. He settled there, and he wrote a book about the uh, Mao Zhou relationship in the last uh, 20 years or so. Fabulous. It's a great book. It's one of the best-selling books uh, in China. I would say outside of China, but people, everybody come out of China would buy a book from New York or from Hong Kong, bring snuggle it back. So what I'm saying is it's very complicated. Uh, there's a lot of people in China who were very conscious. They want to write them. But they, again, they cannot really. It's not whether you can publish or not. You can publish it, but there's a consequence of publishing what you really think. That really matters. I guess just very briefly, I'd say to the first question, um, the Chinese are sufficiently afraid of our power, uh, in my, ex my observation and what, what I can tell, that, um, that a policy of additional pressure would actually make sense. I think, I think, they, I think Chris, is, Chris has touched on the right point, which is that um, right now it's mostly a question of resolve. In the future, it will also be a question of capability, but, but today it's mostly a question of resolve. Will the Xi visit... Um, matter. It seems unlikely to me. Um, I don't think we should be trying to do Xi Jinping any favors. I don't think we should be looking to embarrass him. But, um, um, you know, I don't, I don't see a, a tectonic change in the relationship. On the Bering Straits, I mean, who knows? But it seems unlikely that the Chinese would do something like that without, without, uh, without thinking about it. On the other hand, it, it would kind of in, invite a, a compensatory response on our part. So maybe, who knows? You know, it's like the, it's like the stealth fighter I mean, it seems like they probably knew, but you know, it's hard to get inside. On the sovereignty issue, I, I guess I, um, you know, I think for us the point is that 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 you know the the interests of our allies in particular should be respected, uh, their territorial integrity respected. But we don't need to take particular positions on on sovereignty issues. I mean, the Senkakus are we we judge to be administered by Japan. They're they're covered by the treaty, but as long as issues are peacefully adjudicated. Uh, through through you know internationally accepted means, I think that's you know I, I don't think we we should be disinclined to get into the, into particulars uh, as long as our allies kind of interests are being respected. And are you willing to sign books? We promised you would. I'd be delighted to. <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>